This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Take it away. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Uh, today, we want to continue our conversations about the upcoming selection process for medical students trying to match into neurosurgery. JP and I had some conversations about it, and we wanted to get some folks on to, to get a sounding board, if you will, of other opinions. So I'm super delighted to have with us Jason Schwab. Jason is um, at Henry Ford in Detroit. He is a full professor. I had the pleasure of working with Jason, when he was the chair of the pain section, when I was the chair of the spine section. Jason, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, JP. Nice to speak with you both. So I was super happy when I got that email from you right after our um, recordings went out. And, you know, this is really interesting because I think that not much has changed. I mean, I think we interviewed, what, what year did you interview? Oh, you and I? Uh, well, I think we both graduated in 96. 96, yeah, right? So, so we, we were the 95, 96. 96, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we interviewed together on the trail. We, we met each other then, and I really enjoyed hanging out with you. Um, and, and things were relatively static, but now they've changed a lot. And so last week, we were talking about these issues that the new uh, medical student, the senior medical students have to face. And I just wanted to get your take on it. Like, what do you think is happening? You're in an academic program. You have medical students. You have residents. You have sub-eyes. What do you see happening uh, in your, your, your local region? I mean, I think there are, there are a lot of changes, um, you know, especially with relation to COVID. So um, we saw very different applicants, you know, once the expenses associated with traveling and doing interviews were no longer there and people could just interview from home. In, in fact, we probably had, um, you know, really maybe even higher quality applicants than we did before. And we had really high quality applicants, you know, pre-COVID as well. Um, we, of course, were super worried that you know, because that barrier had been lifted, that um, people were interviewing with us that were applying to our program that, that really didn't have interest in coming. Um, we've actually done quite well on our match the past, you know, two or three years with COVID and been very happy with our results, but it's definitely been stressful. Um, and, and so, you know, there is that issue of, is this person going to be a, a good fit? You know, can you tell that over, uh, over zoom or not? Probably not, but, you know, then you don't want to be in a position where you're telling people, well, you know, if you're really interested, come and do a site visit. I mean, in fact, that's been prohibited, um, because it, it can introduce additional bias and, 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 uh, you know, I'm sensitive to this. I mean, I remember, you know, many of us were taking out loans so we could go interview at neurosurgical programs. But the reality is, is that you're talking about you know, eight to 10 percent of the average uh, American's life expectancy is going to be spent in neurosurgery residency. It's a big decision. And so there it probably makes sense to invest some of those resources in making sure it's a good fit. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it, it's a real, it's a real struggle and, and just like, you know, any change, there's a lot of uncertainty as to how it's going to pan out and, and whether we're going to continue to be able to identify the best candidates who are going to be a good fit, who are going to flourish in our program. 
I think that was a really great and concise statement of the problem as it stands now, or maybe the, the situation as it stands now to have less of a negative connotation. You, you really touched on the previous concerns of travel expense, all the concerns that we and everyone for the past couple of years have been talking about in regards to virtual interviews and not meeting people from the program standpoint and not meeting people or seeing locations from the applicant standpoint. Um, I'm really happy, though, and interested to hear that you've at your program at Henry Ford, you've been very happy with who you've matched throughout this process of shifting toward the virtual interviews and having less of that face to face interaction. So before we dive into kind of the rest of those issues and talk about how things might continue to change with this upcoming interview cycle, I wonder if you have any insights into what you did right to be so happy with who you matched. What was it sheer dumb luck? Did you see a different um, ratio of people that you matched from home so you already knew them? What, what do you think accounts for that? Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, if I look at our matches the past three years, none of them are from Wayne State or University of Michigan. Um, well, surprisingly, the past three years, you know, we have not matched someone from Wayne State or University of Michigan, whereas you know, prior to that, in the old system, we, we would often match uh, medical students, especially from Wayne State, you know, which is a huge medical school. It's over 230 students per year uh, here in Detroit. And, and you know, we have some really fabulous people uh, who've gone through our program, some of whom are now on faculty who came from Wayne State. So um, surprisingly, it wasn't that situation. Um, so, you know, if I look at our last three years, we have someone from Nebraska, uh, someone from North Dakota, someone from um, Cincinnati, someone from Louisville, um, someone from Utah, you know, so it's been a really uh, unusual group. And, and maybe, you know, because of the lower barrier to interviewing, whereas someone before from Utah might not you know, choose to come to Detroit, for an interview, you know, that person did and fell in love with the program. Um, so, so that's been, you know, lowering that barrier, you know, may have been to our advantage. Um, I don't want to give away all of our trade secrets, but, you know, I, I don't think it's any surprise that selling Detroit is a great place to live is a bit of a challenge, even though you know, we feel that it is. Um, and so we've spent a fair amount of resources, you know, doing videos and, and actually having uh, a couple of our present PGY4s who both grew up in the area and are huge Detroit boosters, you know, reaching out to applicants the day before the interview and telling them about the program and telling people what it's like to live in Detroit um, and, and that there's a lot to offer for someone in their residency, you know, to come here. Um, so I think that's been super helpful as well. Um, and, I, and I think in general, you know, there are several of us on the faculty that have national reputations and that helps get the word out as well in terms of recruiting uh, good people. Yeah, Jason, absolutely. Your reputation obviously precedes uh, you and, and folks want to come train with you and uh, and some of your faculty, your chairman, who's now, I think, some sort of an associate dean, right, or institute director. He's um, the CEO of the medical group and and will be the dean of the uh, new MSU campus that's opening here in Detroit. 
Right. So it's there's no shortage of incredible talent that you have locally uh, there at Henry Ford. But, you know, you think about it from both perspectives. And I like how you brought it up. It's not just about how we look at the applicants, but how the applicants look at us. And I think that the way programs are presenting themselves, you brought up the issue in Miami, of course, was notorious for this, of a lot of sort of Zoom presentations and videos about how life is. And we've seen some pretty interesting ones over the past couple of years, some quite comical from programs. Um, but to, to me, I guess I'm old school. I think, wow, you know, like you're not taking a vacation, right? You're not going on a cruise. This is really about some pretty hardcore elements of how you uh, train to become a, a brain surgeon. And so, you know, I, it, it, it sort of ruffles my feathers a bit, but maybe I'm just so antiquated. And let me present it back to you because you had brought up this issue of you thought, at least in private to me, like, well, you know, how do we stratify these folks, right? So you take away the board scores, or at least step one, you take away the in-person interviews, you take away the second looks. So you've got a handful of sub eyes if you're lucky enough to get them. How do you pick? Is it just publications? You had brought up the issue of, you know, of people's, how the people's CVs look, right? How their resumes look. Like, what do you think is going to be the, the, the major deciding factors now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like you, I'm very unhappy about the USMLE going away, uh, or at least part one. And, and so, you know, it's putting more emphasis on part two. Um, and I don't know that that's any better than part one. And, and yes, there are problems with USMLE part one. There is racial bias, there's socioeconomic bias uh, in the results of those scores. You, you know, there's no question. But and, and I can tell you that, you know, there have been um, people that we didn't interview because they didn't hit our cutoff who've gone on to very successful um, careers in, in neurosurgery um, that I regret that we didn't even bother interviewing. Um, but, but that being said, I mean, I think if you have a, a lower bar for USMLE, it, it is helpful. And I think if you don't have USMLE, well, then what are you basing it on? You know, who are you going to interview? Because, you know, it, it's the same question with the SATs, which is also biased or MCATs. Um, but, you know, if I'm a program director and I'm looking at someone who, you know, went to Stanford like you did or um, and has a good grades and, you know, a bunch of papers, I kind of know what that means. If I have someone who went to, you know, a smaller school that maybe not, doesn't even have an affiliated nurse, academic neurosurgical program, I, I don't know how to evaluate that person's potential without the USMLEs. And so there's a high likelihood that we're not going to interview that person. Conversely, you know, a person who, you know, may go to a school like that, but has killer USMLEs, you know, that indicates to me that, you know, they've been able to deal with the limitations of their environment and, and yet be incredibly successful and may have a lot of potential. And for all the criticisms of these standardized tests, I do think they, they do tend to correlate with um, performance on the neurosurgery written boards and even to some extent the oral boards. And what I've seen over the past several years, that may be continued bias, but, but I don't see the, the the neurosurgical written and oral boards going away anytime soon. Um, and many of the pe people I've seen who've had really big problems with those boards, you know, are not good test takers. They don't present well. And, and that's, a, and that's a problem. 
Um, so, you know, I, when I look at it as an associate program director, you know, looking at an applicant from uh, a smaller name or lower name uh, medical school who doesn't have a lot of publications is not in an environment where they're going to get a lot of publications. Even if they have good grades, I don't even know how to really interpret, you know, grades at that school. I'm probably not going to interview them. Um, and that person, if they really want to make in neurosurgery, it would not surprise me if they need to go to a place and spend an extra year at someplace that they can get that experience at all the expense uh, in terms of money and time and dealing with their educational loans, et cetera. So that actually takes me to the very next thing I wanted to ask you. I mean, I, I feel like the obvious next question as we start talking about the loss of this distinguishing factor in someone's application, the loss of the ability to stratify people cleanly by this objective measure or to some extent subjective perhaps, but that USMLE score, I, the obvious question I'd like to ask is what will you do instead? What do you think you'll be using? Of course, with the caveat that that's one program and one policy there at Henry Ford, but like you said, you don't want to give away all your secrets. So perhaps to whatever extent you can comment on what the discussions have been there about what techniques you might use to screen applicants. But then on the flip side of that, as you kind of started to touch on there, what would you advise people to do if they are coming from perhaps a less prestigious school where they have less access to uh, a neurosurgery department, prominent neurosurgeons to write them recommendations? What would you advise these applicants? I think they're going to have to find some way to get someplace that there's someone who can write a good recommendation that's going to help them. Um, and that's not easy to determine. I mean, no one you know, puts up a ranking of, of who writes the best, most trusted recommendations. I mean, we all know that there are people out there who are faculty that you know, rave about everyone and therefore their recommendation is meaningless. We know that there are people out there that you know, are, are, can be extremely harsh and, and sometimes even hurt applicants. So it's not an easy thing to to deal with for an upcoming applicant. It's very it's going to be very hard for them to negotiate, and there's going to frankly be a lot more luck. I mean, I think for us, you know, we're going to look more at publications. We're going to look at grades, but frankly, you know, the, the grades are going to be more important if they're coming from big name academic centers than if it's someplace that you know we've never taken a resident from before. Um, or we don't really know well. Um, and a lot of it is going to be recommendations from people we know and trust. Um, and we've seen enough of their recommendations that we know that they're somewhat meaningful. And, and that's difficult, right? You know, because even, even in writing recommendations, like I, I'm not going it, to, it's very difficult for me to say that someone is average. So there is a little bit of Lake Wobegon effect that, you know, all, all children are above average, but whether they're in the top 5% or top 10% or top 20% is where the real action is. Yeah. Jason, I love that you bring that up. I want to dive deeper into that because we have not covered that in this podcast, which I am ashamed to say uh, because it's such an important point. So the typical pattern is you go to college uh, and in that process, you need recommendation letters, and it's fairly standardized through a high school, through a counselor, right? Then to get into medical school, you need a second set of letters, and you approach 
maybe professors or people you did research with, um, and you try to get a letter. And generally speaking, the writer of the letter will not be well known, certainly to the vast majority of medical school admissions committees, right? Unless it's someone exceedingly famous. But the vast majority are people that you know that uh, write a letter, but nobody really has any interpersonal relationship with that person unless they're from the same school, right? Right. And now you enter this third phase where it is very different, where most of the people reading the letters who are going to make decisions anyways, know a fair number or maybe even all of the letter writers, right? So yep. this is a fascinating matrix now. And, and I, I will tell you my personal take on this. My personal take is I don't like to write many letters for people. And uh, we heard Steve Giannata talk about this, about how uh, in the business world in L.A., he had a good friend who's a CEO who said, I'm not allowed to write letters. Legal counsel says I can't write letters because they're uh, if they're overly laudatory, then I'm liable for misrepresenting the qualities. If they're negative, then I might get sued by the by the applicant or the person soliciting the letter. Right. We're not worried about that. But I don't write a lot of letters because I want the letters I write to mean something. So if Mike Wang says this guy or this gal is amazing, they're not going to see a lot of letters from me, but they know who I am. So I like that. On, on the converse side, chairman and program directors get approached to write letters for everybody, right? So you see all these letters, and I, I'm sure they enjoy it because their name gets out there. But I don't know how to assess the value of a letter when, as you said, all the letters look the same. So help us out on the matrix if you're an applicant. Um, how do you decide? Oh my, oh my God! I mean, oh, as an applicant, who have you decide? I think it's difficult, and you know, and and also remember, like, I mean, we had an applicant a couple of years ago who who came from uh, a medical branch of university up in in Marquette, Michigan, up in the Upper Peninsula. Great candidate, um, and you know, the person who wrote her recommendation, I knew because he had trained at our program. We were involved in state neurosurgical stuff but you know that letter is going nowhere at, at most other programs outside the state of michigan that don't know this medical school don't know that this you know private practice or employed neurosurgeon uh up in marquette um so they don't even have a chance you, you know so so there's you know whereas getting rid of the usmle is supposed to reduce bias and open up opportunity it, it that may work you know if you're going to a top 50 medical school that has a strong neurosurgical program. If, if you're at a medical school that does not have an academic neurosurgical program, that recommendation is not very meaningful. Um, and so you have to find people whose names mean something and, and have some credibility. Um, and it's very hard to identify those people. If you're, if you're new to the field or, you know, the people giving you advice are, are, not part of national neurosurgery, not involved in the subspecialty organizations or in AANS or CNS uh, to the same extent that you and I are. Yeah, it is tough. And, and I wonder with this discussion of letters and who they come from, who they go to, and, and all the relative impact of these things based on who you know, you, you know, to, to the extent that we can comment on this, what do you think the role is of call it back channel communications, call it word of mouth with that reputational informal communication about people. You know, it, it happens on the resident level when we talk about people who want to come for a second look or a sub eye. I imagine, though I have not witnessed it, that it happens at every level of the profession. Do you think that this loss of a quantifiable metric might increase the, the reliance that we have on 
not only the formal but the informal talks? I think so. And and my concern is this going to make it more of an old boys club and less of uh, a, a subspecialty, you know, a specialty where a lot of people have access. Um, and, and I think that's the biggest problem with um, getting rid of USMLE is that you're eliminating people who otherwise, you know, would have a chance if they scored really, really well. And there are definitely people who do that. Um, and I think a lot of those people that in the past we would take a second look at and do more research into, you know, we're not going to really be looking at. Yeah, Jason, I, I love that you bring that up. You're so smart. And um, I was in a conversation with our chairman, Alan Levy, and you're probably familiar. We ha- we started yeah. a Black Lives Matter fellowship here, um, and Miami's been sort of in the forefront with that. And, and Alan was telling me that he's got a gal working with him uh, who – is fantastic. Who's writing a letter? Um, uh, I'm sorry, writing a paper. I'm sorry, writing a paper with him that's really impactful. And this is an individual that is not from University of Miami, but came from a medical school that is one of the newer schools, and they don't really have a real neurosurgery program. And I'm sure there's someone who does neurosurgery there, but it's not a residency program. It's not a known quantity. And he was like, "Wow, you know, there are these people in these medical schools." And, you know, look, you can say what you want about better or worse medical schools, but the top people in any medical school, the top handful anyways, are probably pretty good, right? Yeah. And they are at a huge disadvantage, right? Because they don't have a Jason Schwab to, to approach on a daily basis from year one. So help us out with those people listening who are coming from medical schools. There are many of them here in Florida, like University of Central Florida, which is in Orlando, yeah. Florida State University, right? That These are FIU, Florida International University. They don't have mature neurosurgery programs and no residency programs. What do those people do to get on the board? Yeah, I mean, I, I was actually just thinking as you were describing this this person of, of someone we had interviewed a couple of years ago from UCF who I thought was great, and this person was very smart and chosen to go to UCSF to UCF rather because um, essentially they got free ride and they were in one of the first classes. And I don't have any idea how to evaluate his grades or. Uh, other stuff, but I did know how to evaluate his, his USMLE scores, um, but now that's gone. And, and so it, it's really incumbent upon people, you know, to find the Allen Levies or, you know, other people around the country to re- do research with and, and to get to advocate for them. Um, otherwise, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle coming from a lot of these schools, especially the newer schools. So the other interesting thing that we talked about last week that I think is the the new hot tool uh, or what what have you coming for this interview season is this preference signaling. And for our listeners, I'll point you back to last week's episode if you haven't heard about this uh, to kind of detail what this tool is and, and how it's going to function in our interview season upcoming in neurosurgery. So Dr. Schwab, since, since we're losing this capacity to rank people from the program's standpoint, and consequently, the applicants are losing this capacity to distinguish themselves if they're coming from these relatively disadvantaged medical schools, as we've been discussing. What do you think the role is for this preference signaling, perhaps from the perspective of someone coming from a smaller name school? Do, do you expect to give these signals much credence? Do you think it'll play a large role in your process this upcoming interview season? What's what's your hot take on preference signals? I think it will influence you know, how the programs interview and, and rank people. Because I think that one of our big fears if, is that 
people are now applying to, you know, Mike and I may have applied to like 12 or 40, I think I applied to like 14 programs, something like that, which was a lot, you know, back then. I don't know how many you applied to JP, but you know, now you've got a more much than lower bar. Yeah, more than 12, but you know, now people are applying to like 60, 70. And so, you know, the reality is, is like, I really don't want to spend six days uh going through interviews and and losing all our time and time to teach my residents and you know having my residents spend a huge amount of time entertaining and trying to uh, recruit you know new medical students um so the preference signaling is is frankly really trying to reduce the number of people you have to interview to get reasonable candidates that might actually come to your program mm -hmm. um so i think you know that'll be helpful um, are you going to miss out on the occasional resident who might not have applied to you otherwise, but, you know, saw your program and then fell in love with it? Yes. Uh, I think that's probably a price that most of us are willing to pay. Um, but, but I think that, you know, if, if it depends on where that cutoff is, right? So it's been all over the place looking at other specialties. There are some specialties that are saying, well, you can only name like five. You know, there are other specialties. I think orthopedics is doing something like 25 or something like that. You know, so that's like, okay, well, that's, you know, if you're interviewing for two spots or, you know, that's probably a reasonable thing to do. Um, or, you know, you can even make it larger, make it 40. Um, but but it, it weeds out some of the people who are, who are just not interested and are just, you know, trying to maximize their their chances. Um, but are but are unlikely to rank your program highly. Well, Jason, uh, as we close things out, I mean, I want to give you the opportunity because you've been so generous with your time and honest with your comments and answers to our questions. Tell the folks out there what kind of opportunities exist at your institution, at Henry Ford, maybe with you in your lab or your clinical group, um, that folks that are interested in, maybe they are from, uh, you know, like Michigan State or something like that. Tell people about what is going on uh, at Henry Ford that, people who are interested in neurosurgery can get involved in? Oh, wow. Well, you know, there's a ton of stuff going on in, in our shop. Um, I mean, I personally am, am mostly interested in socioeconomic work, and, and we do a lot of work in, in because we have this patient population and we're devoted to it uh, on disparities and, and trying to improve quality and, and eliminate disparities. So that's been uh, a huge um, lever that we've been working on in, in our program. Um, and I know, Mike, you've been kind enough to come talk to the our group um, as the coordinating center for Michigan Spine Surgery Improvement Collaborative. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. We have a huge brain tumor group that has had significant research, in, especially in terms more recently in, in liquid biopsy um, and things like that. Um, but, but there are a ton of, of, of opportunities in our, in our program, um, to, to do a variety of research, you know, be it from socioeconomics to quality improvement to, uh, basic science. Uh, we have, you know, our one funded investigators as, as well, you know, not as many as, as a large academic university like University of Miami or Rush. Um, but we do have a, a fair number of, of uh, well-funded labs as well. Um, so there, there are plenty of opportunities here. Well, Dr. Schwab, we want to thank you for coming on to discuss this topic, which is obviously very timely and I think at the forefront of 
many people's interests in our field, uh, both from the applicant and the program side. I do want to take a brief moment to give a shout out. You, you know, you mentioned the intrepid PGY4s at your program doing their best to promote Detroit and uh, the department there. Uh, they're Hassan Fidel and Jacob Pulaski. They're actually my year. I remember them from the interview cycle. And Hassan, I think, is one of the biggest cheerleaders for any city I've ever met in my life. Uh, the man bleeds Detroit. And uh, their classmate from medical school is actually my co-resident, Brad Kolb. So I can speak yep. directly to the, the quality of uh, trainees that come out of that uh, program. So you, you've got a great crew there, and I'm sure they're doing a great job promoting all that exciting stuff happening at Henry Ford. So thank you for coming on the show to discuss this process and all of these changes, uh, some exciting and some perhaps giving pause and trepidation affecting our interview cycle in neurosurgery. Thanks for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.